Well, good morning. Let me add my warm welcome to be, uh, thanks so much for having me. My name is David. It is always great to be back in Wisconsin. My family's here with me. Anna's running around, uh, I think, in the baby room right now. But uh, we have two boys, Oliver and Silas, our youngest, Eloise. Um, and yeah, like, like Dan said, my, my little boys are at my parents' farm, digging around in the dirt, riding around the tractor, just uh, in their element as, as four-year-olds and two-year-olds are. But as you know, it's always good to be back in Wisconsin because there's things about our ordinary that you know are quite special. Somebody says something like cheese, okay. Cheese curds, pretty special. Road trip, okay, pretty ordinary. Culver's on a road trip, all right, now we're talking. Naming my children, pretty normal. Naming my children before they're born so I can get them on the Packers season ticket list, pretty, pretty special. Sorry, Eloise, I did that for my first two, but we need to get Eloise still on, on the season ticket. It gets a little crazy with, with the third. Sitting in a tree, pretty ordinary. Sitting in a tree, opening gun morning, seeing the woods come alive, right, for something pretty special. So being in Wisconsin, you know there are things that are ordinary for other people, but pretty special for all of us. So it's always good to be back. I'm a fifth-generation Wisconsinite of lots of family in the area, so thanks so much for having me. As a professor, I've also been able to see ordinary things around the world that have also, for me, have had a, had a different vision to see them as something quite extraordinary. A few years ago, I was, uh, this next picture, with a theologian named Rene Padilla, who's Ecuadorian, and I was uh, in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And Rene Padilla is a, a, a theologian, and one afternoon he took me to his community. It's called the Integral Mission, Community for Integral Mission. And he named it after actually this whole wheat bread, and you'll see why that's, that's really important. But one afternoon we met a man named Kike. And Kike told us this story where he used to be addicted to drugs. He used to be addicted to alcohol. And Kike said he used to walk down the streets of Buenos Aires and the doors to stores would close in front of him because he caused so much mayhem. And he said every single door would close in front of me except for one door, and that was the door to Rene Padilla's church. He said, that door opened to me, and then a second door opened to me, and that was the door to Rene Padilla's home. He said, David, I wanted nothing to do with God. I had no interest at all, wasn't on my radar, but I met God at that table. And I spent about two weeks with Rene Padilla and our entire time had been in Spanish together, but as if to make sure I didn't miss it, in case my Spanish wasn't that good, Rene leaned over to me after Kike told his story and he said, David, every human need is a mission field. Every human need is a mission field. What was Rene saying to me? Because God loves the world, there's a mission in the ordinary. There's a mission in the everyday. And so, we hear a lot on Sunday mornings. I hope we hear more of it about missions, right? Incredibly important. And I've been able to study a lot of it for my day job. And we'll hear things like pray, give, and go. We need to pray more for our missionaries. So, so incredibly important. I hope, I hope if you have a family that you have a missionary that's on your fridge that you talk to with your kids. It's such an incredible thing to talk about the gospel. Um, I hope you give to missionaries. So important. I hope some of you consider going. So none of this is at the expense of that. We need so much more of it. But for most of it, us, we're here, right? You're in Rapids. What does it mean, the good news of Jesus, for my everyday life, as I am a stay-at-home mom, or I am with my kids at the park, or I'm working my shift at my job, or um, hanging out with my neighbors? 
What does this mean? So we often think of God's heart for the world with those things as something that happens over there for the professional Christians or for the full-time ministry professionals, super Christians. We even have a name for people who do mission, right? Missionaries. Maybe you've been tempted to view evangelism or sharing Jesus as something we just bring people to church and the pastor can share Jesus with them, which again is very important. But I'm hoping that when we think about mission, when we think about sharing Jesus, you think, you think that's what a stay-at-home mom does. That's what a welder does. That's what a college student does. That's what a cashier does. That's what a professor does. That's what I do. And our passage this morning is going to be speaking to our ordinary lives as we encounter people in our routine. Another mom at the park, a classmate, a parent, a person who shares your shift at work. And we're going to see that this is the place that God has designed for sharing Christ. And the person that he's calling to that is you, if you know him. I heard somebody say to me once, talking about missionaries, there's no magic plane ride that automatically then, once you're on it, makes you care about the lost, makes you care about the hurting, makes you want to share Jesus. All of a sudden, if you're just going abroad, now you're caring about those things, right? This is who we are. And God wants to, wants to make that true in us. You've heard it here at Crossview. You've heard that God wants you to make your ripple, right? This is so similar. He wants you to hear the applause of heaven. So if you had a late night last night or you're still waking up, I want you to catch one thing this morning. As an ordinary Christian, and that's me and you, as an ordinary Christian, you have a mission in the ordinary. As an ordinary Christian, you have a mission in the ordinary. So let's pray that God would guide us into that this morning and then we'll open up his word. Father, thank you for letting me be here in Rapids, incredible church community, and I pray that your word would diagnose our hearts and that you would encourage us that this would not be even an ounce of guilt but of exciting invitation to be part of your mission. I pray that your word would lead us into that. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bible this morning, and I hope you do, let's open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 through 6, 2. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 6, 2. For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. From now on then, we don't know or view anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we've known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he's committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Working together with him, we also appeal to you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at an acceptable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. So sometimes we read passages of scripture, and I don't know if you're like me, but it feels like it is very different than the context that we find ourselves living in. You read about sacrificing animals and you ask yourself, am I supposed to go over to the nearest farm and plover or grab an animal sacrifice? Like, what does this mean for my life? But in Corinth, there's actually a lot in common with us here in 21st century America. Like America, perhaps no other city, and you remember the Roman Empire, a massive, massive empire that reaches all the way to the UK. If you go to the UK today in England, you can see Hadrian's Wall where the Romans got to, right? It's this massive empire. And perhaps no other city in the Roman Empire had so beneficial of an atmosphere for individual advancement, like the American dream. This was Corinth, where we're reading about Paul writing to the Corinthians. But just like us, Corinth was struggling to balance its identity as a culture and as a church. If you've been paying attention at all in our world, in our country, we're struggling to figure out our balance of a culture and a church, right? Our country, who are we as Americans? What does that mean? What does it mean for our churches? Thankfully, Dan's going to handle that one later on. I'll talk about something different, but it's, it's our context, right? And so the motives of everyday Corinthians, like Americans, were struck by competitive individualism, a focus on themselves. What could they get out of their everyday lives, and it threatened their shared mission together in Christ. Sound familiar? So we'll see in our passage, just like the Corinthians, that God wants to come into that situation and renovate. And he wants to renovate three different things. The first thing is, he wants to renovate or bring to us a new motivation. Verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us, since we've reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. I don't know if you're like me, but when I hear a sermon about sharing Jesus with people, I often feel guilty. I often feel a weight of like, I'm the worst, right? What's, what's encouraging, I think, about this passage of getting a new motivation is, what does Paul say? The love of Christ compels us. Not the guilt of my pastor, right? The love of Christ. Not the guilt of, of my own shortcomings. For the Apostle Paul, his inner motivations had been renovated by Christ invading his life. Paul is controlled or motivated because he's convinced. See that in verse 14? Love of Christ compels us, for we have reached this conclusion, or I've been convinced, if one died for all, then all died and we should no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. He's convinced that Christ's death in his place, one died for all, redefines life. Christ's death in his place and in the place of God's people redefines life. And so now he considers the needs of others to be more important than the needs of his own. Verse 16. And that reality drives Paul to reorient his life toward reaching others for Jesus, pointing others in his daily, ordinary life. Paul's so convinced. In Philippians 3.18, he 
He says he's driven to tears because people are going to be separated from God for eternity. In Romans 9, 2 through 3, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for those who don't know Christ. Are we that convinced this morning? Do we feel the pain? And this is what I see on a college campus. Do we see the pain of people searching for meaning in things other than God? In partying, maybe for many of you in your kids' success, in broken relationships, does Christ's love for you motivate you to love others and want to love others into the kingdom? So again, let's not get confused because I think some of us are so used to feeling guilt in, in someone telling us we need to share Christ. I didn't say this to the first of us, so you'll have to, to remind them, but I think, when I was thinking about this, of, of this passage, this is the exciting part of the Christian life. This is what is so great about walking with Jesus, is we get to hold out this message of people, this is what Jesus has done in my life. I want, I want to share this with you. This is the excitement, it's different every single day. The love of Christ, what he's done for us, compels us, what he's placed in our hearts, and now it's been given to us. But I don't know if you're like me as I feel that tension. Mission in my ordinary. I'm driving home from work after a long day, see my neighbor doing some landscaping or mowing his lawn. Do I pull into my driveway, pull into my garage, close the garage door, go sit on my couch, right? pull up my fantasy football team? Or do I engage with them? Do I ask my spouse how their relationship with Christ has been today? Do I ask my kids if they love God today with their words and actions? Or do I focus on myself? my annoying coworker, my annoying roommate, when the gospel invades our life, Christ's love bends those arrows of our life outward toward other people around us. But that starts with a new motivation. We need a new motivation of why we would do that in the first place. If you've been paying attention to sports at all, and I pay a lot of attention to it, this is what separates elite athletes from the rest, right? Whatever you think about Aaron Rodgers, how is someone like Aaron Rodgers elite every single year? And I think he is. I mean, we can fight about it afterwards. My wife is not convinced, but elite every single year. He's got a chip on his shoulder the size of the Grand Canyon, right? And every single year, he's out to prove. He's got a, he's got a motivation, right? Or, or take somebody else. You don't want a controversial Tom Brady or Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant. Borderline like antisocial focus on, right, this one motivation year in and year out. This is what they're doing. We know if you're, if you're a parent, you know what it is to think like, what's the motivation I can get my four-year-old to go potty or, you know, change his clothes? Or you can think of like, they need a new motivation. What is it that's going to make them do this? And I can't relate, obviously, to great motivations to be an elite athlete when I sit, sit on my couch eating cousin subs, yelling at the pack. I could have made that tackle, right? I don't know what it's like to have a motivation that leads me to be an elite athlete, but in our everyday lives, we need motivation that's different, I think, for many of us that's motivated us in the past. And this passage wants us to see Christ's love for us, what we've experienced in our own lives is a new motivation. So first, a new motivation. Second, a new mission, uh, sorry, a new vision. Verse 16 and 17. A new motivation, a new vision. Got to see this differently. Verse 16 and 17. From now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we've known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. We don't know anyone. We don't view anyone from a worldly perspective anymore. When we look at people around us, we're not going to view them the same way that our neighbors view them. When we think about 
what makes somebody a human. I view them very differently than my colleagues at my university. Are the people I interact with the product of time plus matter plus chance, simply dancing to their DNA, no different than animals, right? There's something about being human. As Christians, we think and we believe and we're convinced that every person is a spiritual person, that God's given them dignity and worth, potential to know their creator, right? A new vision to see people. But seeing that is going to start with seeing the gospel differently first. So can we, can we come in the classroom for a second? I'll keep you with me. I'm not going to lose you. One of my uh, professor mentors, his name was Andrew Walls. He was at the University of Edinburgh with me. Um, I have a picture here in this, this quote. Um, Andrew Walls just passed away. He was 90-something years old when he was a mentor to me. But he talks about two principles of the gospel. First is the indigenizing principle. Have I lost you? Indigenous, right? Local. Or existing in, in, in this context here. So very local. The gospel is indigenous, and you'll get it in a second. So he says, church history has always been a battleground for two opposing tendencies. And the reason is that each of the tendencies has its origin in the gospel itself. On the one hand, it is of the essence of the gospel that God accepts us as we are. On the ground of Christ's work alone, not on the ground of what we become or are trying to become. But if he accepts us as we are, that implies that he does not take us for, uh, as isolated, self-governing units because we're not. We're conditioned by a particular time and place, by our family and group and society, by culture, in fact. In Christ, God accepts us together with our group relations, with that cultural conditioning that makes us feel at home in one part of human society and less at home in another. Why do I cross the border into Wisconsin and go, all right, I'm home, right? You, the gospel comes to you in rapids. It does not come to you foreign in a different language. It comes to you local. And it meets you where you are. Christ's death for you, the message is indigenous to you. It's local, okay? You get that. But the second is even more important. It's also a pilgrim. So the indigenous principle, yes, it's infinitely local, but it's also a pilgrim. He says this, the Christian inherits the pilgrim principle, which whispers to him that he has no abiding city and warns him that to be faithful to Christ will put him out of step with his society. For that society never existed in East or West, ancient time or modern, which could absorb the word of Christ painlessly into its system. Jesus within Jewish culture, Paul within Hellenistic culture, take it for granted that there will be rubs and frictions that won't fit neatly. Not from the adoption of a new culture, but from the transformation of the mind toward that of Christ. What's, it, what's Professor Wall saying? There's no culture that is going to be an exact fit with the gospel. If you're an American and you become a Christian, there are going to be things about your culture that are not gospel culture. And so a question, and that's a, I think this is, as a historian, I always hesitate to say, like, this is the most important or this hasn't happened before. But this is the moment for the American church to really answer that question. Is it going to be kingdom culture, gospel culture, a new vision, or is it going to be the things that don't fit with American culture. When we look at our neighbors, are we going to view them the way that broader American culture does, or as a Christian, with a new vision, with a new mission? 
how the American church responds to that in viewing the gospel, both indigenously, yeah, it, is, it comes to you as an American, it comes to you in rapids, it comes to you local, but it's a pilgrim. It's never an exact fit. It's always out of step with the culture that it finds itself in. Okay? So first we have to see the gospel in that way, that we're going to be out of step with what our neighbors are believing, with what our co-workers are believing. And God has placed us in this time and place, in rapids, in point, in plover, right here. And God's going to then take that and say, this is a pilgrim. You are not going to fit neatly with the society around you. Your ordinary life is going to be different than the people you're encountering in it. We no longer view people from a worldly point of view. In fact, we used to view Jesus that way. We used to view Jesus that way. Now we don't view him that way anymore. Verse 16. Now we see people as spiritual beings made in the image of God to know and to be loved by him. For some of us, what's going to block us from viewing people that way isn't even worldliness, but religion. What blocked the Apostle Paul from viewing Jesus that way? It wasn't worldliness. He said, I followed the law better than anybody else. He was trying to earn God's favor by doing good works, but he missed the gospel the good news of Jesus. And maybe that's some of us here this morning. It's not a worldly lifestyle, but it's actually our self-made religion of trying to earn our way back to God. And that's the opposite of knowing things according to the spirit, is knowing things according to the flesh. So let's bring it back down to it. I took you in the classroom. Let's come out of the classroom. Let's bring it back down. What does that mean at a very basic level? Everybody you know, everybody you encounter, either knows Jesus or needs to know Jesus. Everybody you know, everybody you encounter, everybody you see in your ordinary life either knows Jesus or needs to know Jesus. And so we have to ask, is that the way I view my coworkers? Is that the way I view my classmates? Is that the way I view my other, the other moms around me or my friend group? God loves the people in your office. God loves the people in your classroom. God loves the people at the park. And are you viewing them from a worldly point of view or, or viewing them in a spiritual point of view? If you're a Christian, the gospel wants to give you a new vision to see the lost person around you, the broken person who needs a listening ear, and to hear that they were made to know and love and be a relationship with Christ. We can easily miss this, and I've missed this actually in the past in this passage. Verse 17, I grew up in the church, maybe you're like me, I did a wana, I memorized this verse. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. It's about me. It is about me. It is about you. But what's the context? We don't know anybody from a worldly perspective. Okay, talking about our neighbor. Therefore, if you see a therefore, find out why it's there, what it's there for. Okay? We don't view anybody from a worldly perspective. Therefore, a new creation. Everything's from God. He's reconciled us to himself. Yes. Verse 18, and given us the ministry of reconciliation. So we're a new creation pointing outward right? To our neighbors. Not just about me and God alone in my room with my Bible, but in the world as new creation among our broken old creation. I mentioned that I see this all the time on a college campus, really coming down to that fundamental view. How do I view people? What does it mean to be human? Are we really spiritual beings or are we simply just a matter of product of time plus matter plus chance? And so for Paul, seeing and valuing his neighbor began with seeing and valuing Christ. 
We have a new motivation, but a new vision. As Rene Padilla said, to look at every human need and see it as a mission field. For my wife Anna and I, this has come to life with our, with our neighbors, Judy and Steve. Judy and Steve are not people that my wife and I would naturally be friends with. They're 35, 40 years older than we are. Our conversations are mostly about plants and sports and the neighborhood. But we've had half a dozen bonfires together, just the four of us. And we've made it an intentional mission to be in relationship with them. Most of the time we're talking about random things, but sometimes the other night we went over for a bonfire and I had just stepped up the stairs and Judy said, do you believe in hell? Okay. Guess we're talking about spiritual things, right? And a couple weeks ago, Judy said to, to Anna and me, she said, I'm coming to church with you all this Sunday. Now that was a thousand conversations about everything under sun, just enjoying each other, just investing in each other. And Judy and Steve are on a, on a journey. I wish I could say, and then they prayed to receive Christ and now they're missionaries, right? And no, they are just around Christians, asking questions on this journey. But we're seeing them very differently than we would see them if we didn't have a mission in those ordinary interactions of mulching our, you know, landscaping and mowing our lawn. Okay, so our neighbors, Judy and Steve, seeing them differently because of who God has made them to be and who God has made Anna and myself to be. So thirdly, first we have a new motivation. Second, we have a new mission. Thirdly, we have a, sorry, first we have a new motivation, vision. Thirdly, mission. Verse 18. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. There's a big word, reconciliation. It means to reestablish reestablish an interrupted or broken relationship. We've seen this in our everyday lives, haven't we? We actually see it a lot in ancient Greco-Roman court documents, reestablishing a broken or interrupted relationship in ancient court. And so our mission of reconciliation is with people who have an interrupted or broken relationship with God, which is everyone who doesn't know him. And so we're reminding people of the image of God in them that you are feeling the brokenness with them and reminding them that they're loved by you and radically loved by God. But notice also, don't miss this, verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. This has to have words. If you're a nice ambassador, just doing good works in the community, but you've been given a message by your monarch to give to warring factions, here's an offer of peace, and you're just being nice, you failed, right? That's not the mission. Gotta use words. God is making, it says in verse 20, his appeal through us. And so we see in the same literature around Paul's day that ambassador is a diplomatic and political term referring to harmony established between enemies by a peace treaty. So we stand in the gap between God and rebellious people saying that God has reached out his hand of peace in Christ. Be reconciled to him, it says. So we've got to use words. We have to open our mouth. We have to speak those words of life because that's our mandate. 
And this means, as I said before, that our faith cannot just be about us and God. It can't just be about you and God at home. If you're, a, if you're in Christ, then you're a, if you're a Christian, you have a ministry of reconciliation. Literally, it's been placed in you, it says. So notice, there's no option in the ordinary. There's no option in the ordinary. The New Testament doesn't have a category for a Christian who doesn't have a mission. So if you don't have a mission, the question that should follow is, am I a Christian? If I don't have a mission, then I might not be a Christian because every Christian has a mission. It's in their DNA. Ordinary Christians have a mission in the ordinary. So in your ordinary job, teacher in a public school or construction worker or in your factory job or uh, as a cashier or stay-at-home mom, all of these callings now have a new purpose in light of this new creation in Christ. And I know you're like me, where we walk past people every day, people we know are hurting, lost, in need of Christ. But what if we were compelled, controlled, motivated to see those people differently and to live the mission that has been placed inside of us by Christ, that we're God's ambassadors, God's agents of healing, bringing words of life. So I mentioned at the beginning, we've got to fight off guilt, right? Because guilt is actually counterproductive. And sociologists have this term when we talk about compassion fatigue because we, we turn on the news and we see problems everywhere. We turn on social media, we see problems everywhere. And what do we do? We tune out. And that's just a natural reaction. And so one, I heard this phrase recently and I, I, it stuck with me because I think part of the antidote is this, to do for one what we wish we could do for all. To do for one what we wish we could do for all. I'm overwhelmed when I think about my entire university. Maybe you're overwhelmed when you think about your entire workplace or your entire team or your entire town. But do for one what you wish you could do for all. Maybe this week sharing Christ with that one friend you know God's been placing on your heart, that one neighbor that you see all the time. At Christmas, adopting one local family in need. On Sunday morning, inviting one person to lunch that you see is new. Knowing you wish you could invite everybody. You wish you could save the whole world. You wish you could feed every hungry child. You wish you could reach everybody on the planet for Christ. But doing it for one. God might open up your heart and open up doors to wider and bigger things, doing extraordinary things with your ordinary faithfulness. So maybe you're like me and you've been tempted to see sharing Jesus as something for the professional Christian, the missionary or just the pastor, a mission is something that takes place way over there, carried out by people who are not me. But God's reminded us this morning that God's calling you to be part of his big story that he's writing in the world. This mission is for you if you're a Christian. That's one of the most exciting things about walking with Christ. So ordinary Christian, me and you, ordinary Christian, God has a mission for you in the ordinary, just like Rene Padilla in our opening, that every human need is a mission field. As part of his new creation, God is unleashing a healed and whole you into a broken world that desperately needs to hear the news that God has given to you. And so my prayer for us is that friends in Rapids would know that you love them differently than anyone else in their lives. That moms at the park or classmates in school or coworkers at work, parents in your kids' sports would see Christ in your love for them. 
in how you feel their brokenness, in their pain for searching for meaning in things outside of God, and in speaking words of life to them, a word of reconciliation that God has entrusted to you. And so my prayer is in our ordinary lives this week, we might live with a new motivation, a new vision, a new mission in pointing broken people to our whole Savior for his glory. Because God loves the world. He has a mission for you in your ordinary. When does he have a mission for you in your ordinary? Notice how the passage ends. Working together with him. What a cool statement. Working together with God. We also appeal to you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at an acceptable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. When is that? See, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. When is our mission? It's today. Let's pray.